Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast. It's my great pleasure to welcome President Michael S. Roth. Michael Roth is the 16th president of Wesleyan University. Professor, author, and curator, Roth's scholarly interests center on how people make sense of the past. His most recent book is Safe Enough Spaces, a pragmatist's approach to inclusion, free speech, and political correctness on college campuses, which came out this year, 2019, from Yale University Press. He continues to teach undergraduate courses and through Coursera, and he regularly publishes essays, book reviews, and commentaries in the national media and scholarly journals. President Roth, Michael, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Josh. Speaking of some of the national media in which you have been publishing opinion pieces and articles, I want to refer to your relatively recent article from September of this year in The Atlantic, in which you discuss religion in the classroom on college campuses. And you write, quote, some may say that students should check their faith at the door, perhaps alongside with their privilege, before they enter the seminar room. But that's not the way I teach. In my classes, I want students to bring their complex, changing identities into our efforts to wrestle with enduring questions of love and judgment, justice and violence, grace and forgiveness, close quote. Granting that you don't, in your classroom, ask students to, as you say, check their faith at the door, it seems to be the case that as a colleague and as the president of a university, you do accept that many other professors do ask their students to, as you say, check their faith at the door. And so I want to ask you, what do you think is going on pedagogically or ideologically when professors adopt that position? Well, I think there are a couple of things, uh, Josh. I think in, in some cases, it just may seem to the faculty member or uh, teacher irrelevant to what's going on in the class. So I guess if you're teaching math or physics uh, where the questions of identity and faith or uh, values perhaps even don't come to the fore, that you're not really that interested <laughs> in what the, uh, the person's religious orientation is. Uh, and and uh, that seems to me reasonable. Uh, I think that there are other cases, though, where uh, students, especially at uh, highly selective colleges and universities uh, like Wesleyan, where students feel like if they uh, showed the teacher that they were religious in some respects or um, thought of themselves as uh, students of faith, as some of the students call themselves here, that the professor would uh, think less of them intellectually, would uh, be biased against them because of their religiosity. That, that and, somehow being religious is credulous. Yeah, and, and that they would be less likely to engage in critical thinking or... Um, or have an axe to grind. Or have an axe to grind. And, and so um, uh, in a predominantly secular institution, uh, uh, that those students just may feel 
they'd rather not <laughs> um, uh, disclose that in the classroom so that the professor doesn't think less of them. I, I think there are other cases where the, the uh, person's faith uh, is, uh, and I use that word with some some hesitation you can hear, because I think for, for many Jews, faith is not really the issue, but let's call it, let's, sometimes I say their religious practice is just not, it's not something they want to talk about because it's it's personal in a way that's different from um, their participation in collegiate life, and so or they for that, or for that matter in Jewish life. Yeah, it it it, it, it could be, uh, and 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 so they um, just keep that part of themselves separate. And what struck me, the reason I wrote about it in, in that uh, Atlantic essay in, in Safe Enough Spaces, is because it seems to me that in many cases, we actually want our students to bring the various parts of their identity into the classroom. <laughs> you know, that if they're speaking uh, as a gay person, or if they're speaking as a Southerner, or if they're speaking as a um, uh, uh a, a person from um, Latin America, we want them to bring that with them into the conversation. It makes the conversation richer, we think, and that's why diversity is so important, and it, it, people bring lots of different perspectives into the mix. But uh, I, I, it seems to me that we have to work harder at secular institutions to encourage students to bring their uh, religious practices and or beliefs into the classroom. At the end of the day, when you when you walk into a classroom and you do, all of us, you know, many of us went to college and we we have these experiences. Um, is there a, is there a problem fundamentally between our understanding of religiosity as a, a state of being and going through the world versus our understanding of religion, which uh, is at least partially understood to be repressive or dogmatic. Yeah. Um, is, is there a way we can massage this in such a way that it's not um, one of the, or, or that it, you can be religious without bearing the, uh, I don't know, the inhibiting components of religion into the classroom? Well, I, I think there are some people who certainly uh, would say, I, my, my beef, they might say, is with, organi with organized religion. Right. And what they mean by that, I guess, is the dogmatic religion. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that there's a tremendous gap between uh, dogmatic and organized religion in, in many instances, and, and you know they're not the same thing. And people can have an organized religious life that's still not dogmatic in the sense of being closed-minded and uh, you know uh, obedience first. Uh, so I, I think that massaging and only that distinction only gets you so far. I, I, I think the, I mean, for me, I'm a historian like you. And, and so I, I want my students to um, show that they understand what a philosopher or another writer means by um, uh, feeling the love of God, let's say. Uh, I want them to, to actually speak about that uh, so that they show an effort to understand the author they're reading. And that sometimes means drawing on their own experience. Um, and I want them to see why the author we're reading is worth reading. <laughs> um, I want them to be able to put themselves in the shoes uh, of the author, at least to some extent. 
And that requires them using their imagination to um, uh, articulate what it might mean to, let's say, feel the love of God or be forgiven um, uh, in a religious context. And when I'm teaching this stuff, I know there are some people in the room uh, who have a personal experience in this regard that's relevant to the discussion, but they're very unlikely to bring it up. And that's, it was interesting to me since they often will bring up um, sexuality or race or prejudice or trauma or, I mean, things that are extremely personal sometimes and painful. Uh, but it was as if there were a, a, a religious taboo or at least a filter uh, against religious experience. I have a two-part question to follow up on that. I'm wondering if you have a story of your own Jewishness and your own relationship with belief or disbelief uh, that shapes your intellectual engagement and your humanistic appreciation of these texts, which which you referred to before. And that's one question. And then the second part of the question is, do you ever bring that story into class to open up the students or to open up a space for the students? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, of course, I have a story. <laughs> uh, and in my case, it's odd in a way that I, I, I've written about this a few times. And first time many years ago, I was asked uh, uh, by an uh, editor if I, if I would write a, a little autobiographical essay and so um, I, I wrote a, an essay called Shoah as Shiva, which was both a reading of the Claude Lanzmann film, Shoah, which I uh, used to teach uh, regularly, uh, and uh, but intertwined with the reading of the film and its place in uh, films about uh, historical trauma, intertwined with that was my own story was why I thought I had gotten interested in teaching this kind of stuff. And, and that in my case had to do with uh, the fact that before I was born, my uh, older brother, uh, uh, the firstborn of my parents died. Uh, and even saying this out loud to you now is is challenging for me because in my household, this was something never to be mentioned. There was a yard side candle. There was, uh, there was uh, going to shul and doing the yard site and watching my parents uh, cry and things like this, but we would never talk about it. And so I wrote this piece about how this loss, which was a loss at a remove, you know, because I was, as I said, I wasn't born. Uh, I was the replacement child in a way for my brother, Neil. Um, I have another brother, uh, Rick, another older brother, who'd felt this, I think, more, certainly more acutely. Um, but he and I never spoke about it until we were adults. And then I get a bar <laughs> for a minute. Anyway, so I wrote about how my, all the things I'd ever written about um, were about how people deal with a loss in the past that they can't make whole. And I thought to myself, this is probably not an accident. <laughs> uh, and Lonsman's film, as you, as you probably know, is really about the impossibility, among other things, it's about the impossibility of representing the Shoah 
there's no image there of uh, there's no uh, there's there's there, there's only uh, images of reports about always at a distance, always at remove. There's never a making whole in Lonsman's uh, what is it nine plus hours of of the film. And so I wrote in there about how I was always attracted to thinkers who um, left a gap between loss and redemption. And then many years later, probably 18 years ago now, my father died and I was trying to find a place to, to say Kaddish. And I was at the time living in Berkeley. I had no religious practice. I had been raised as a reformed Jew on Long Island. I had my little my crisis of faith uh, through existentialism in high school, and and I kind of just got away from any organized practice of religion. And I went to high holidays. That's about it. Um, uh, but when my father died, I, I wanted to say Kaddish, and so I found a minion in Berkeley and went um, every week, just not every day, but every week. And, and, and uh, <laughs> my wife was like, what's going on? What are you going to come home with pay us one day? You know, <laughs> and, I was very, and, and then the, this group was, they were just fantastic. They were just beautiful Berkeley people uh, who had a lay minion. And so you had to take it to your chance. You had to take your turns uh, leading and, and then Marion, who was the wonderful uh, figure in this group, came to me one day and said, why don't you stay for Torah study? And I said, ah, don't do that. You know, that's not, I'm, I'm an atheist. And she's like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why don't you stay for Torah study? So you find it interesting. You know, the dean of the law school is going to be there. This artist is going to be in it. And again, it was a lay group. The rabbi came for pedantry. <laughs> I think <laughs> they would ask him questions uh, about, you know, details. But he was a lay group. And so I went and I thought it was fantastic, really interesting and dynamic. And I love old texts. <laughs> so as I told myself, and so I would go regularly. Now my wife was getting really worried because I didn't want to miss Torah study <laughs> after the after the minion, which I, uh, you know, I didn't need to say Kaddish, but I still went to the minion, not because I believed in anything, but because I liked the company. Um, and finally, the rabbi says to me, we'd like you at this big congregation in Berkeley, a kind of reformadox thing, you know, and did some lots of ritual, but it was still reform, I guess, in name. Um, uh, we'd like you to tell the congregation on, on Rosh Hashanah why you go to Torah study. And this, you know, this is like Torah study, maybe 40 people, Rosh Hashanah, you know, I don't know, 4,000 it seemed. <laughs> so I said, no, Rabbi, you don't want me to do that. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything. I go to Torah study. I like old books. He puts his hand up. He says, listen, God doesn't care what you believe. <laughs> he says, you go every week. That's what I care about. And so I talked to the congregation about why I go to Torah study. So my own personal experience of this has been not a experience of faith. That's why I always uh, hesitate a little bit around that word, but an experience of practice. And I think very superficial, the truth, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a better Jew than I am. <laughs> but, but at the same time, it was very meaningful to me at that point in one's life. Uh, when you lose your father, you know, it just, it, it cut deep. So I think 
my appreciation for the various ways that my students might be experiencing religious practice, religious ritual, religious faith, you know, and, and so on. I think that just opened up much more than it had been when I was a young faculty member, when I would have thought a religious person is probably more closed-minded than the average person, rather than thinking a religious person might actually be more open to the varieties of experiences around them than some secular people might be. And it seems from your self-description in that Atlantic article that it has shaped the way you you run a seminar room. So it seems like there's uh, all kinds of uh, flow from from that experience. There, there is. I mean, I, it's interesting. You know, it's it's it, uh, since I'm the president, I, I I actually teach kind of large classes. So I have like 75 people in that class. So it's not as if we. So it's hard. It is harder for people to bring their, you know, to reveal much of themselves in, in that setting than a, like a seminar of fifteen people. But I work very hard to make it engaging and make possible openings for sharing personal and familial and and uh, religious experiences. Uh, and and partly, I think I told this during the Atlantic article by the student Hukino, who who. Who described this? What he described as a prejudice against him, and I'm very uh, because he was religious. And I, I, I'm very clear to the class that I'm I'm, I'm Jewish, and that I um, uh, sometimes I say secular Jews, and I say atheist Jew. But uh, but I'm teaching. You know, whether uh, last week was Aquinas. Um, I really tried to make clear how vitally important it seemed to people to decide, let's say, a question between Aquinas and Augustine and to make them really feel, oh, yeah, I know, I can see why that would be important. That it's not just, is it going to be on the test? But you, you would want to know whether love was enough, <laughs> let's, say, let's say, you know, and, and um, uh, or when I talk to them about, uh, Alistair McIntyre has this great um, description of how Aristotle, he says, Aristotle has no place for the thief on the cross. And so I asked my class, 75 people, who knows what the thief on the cross is? So a couple of, I assume, <laughs> not, not Christians in the front say, oh, Jesus. And no, 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 that's not. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. And so, so finally, somebody is not afraid to out herself. And I really do think it's like that. She raises her hand and she says, you know, the, the person on the cross next to Jesus was a thief. And then I say, so why does he mean there's no Aristotle, who McIntyre adores and has deep respect for, has no place for this? What does that mean? So we talk about it. What does it mean to have no place for forgiveness in your way of thinking? And suddenly, you know, for 19-year-old people, that's a real deal, really interesting issue. And what does it mean when suddenly you have a greater capacity for forgiveness and love? And I actually try to pitch that. As 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 this extraordinary intervention of Christianity, I say you know Jews think we we think we have forgiveness too actually, but for these purposes, <laughs> you know um, that, that 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 kind of Christian message of forgiveness, I really try to get them to see, or at least to stand in a place where they can feel how important it it, it has been for people. And this year, it just so happens, I, I ask them at the end of every class to send me an email with something from class that they don't want to forget. It's a way of taking attendance and also to reinforce whatever they think they've learned. Um, and th- this time I said, send me an email. Tell me something that, 
it's important that you've forgiven someone for or have been forgiven for. You know, and some of them write things like, yeah, I took candy from my neighbor or stuff like that. But my goodness, some of them wrote me these very intense, interesting messages um, about what forgiveness has meant to them. And I think they have understood, have an opening to understand Aquinas and Augustine much more deeply as a result of having thought about it in these terms, going back and forth between their own experience and the historical experience we're trying to illuminate. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to shift the conversation a bit to move from the very deeply personal educational place of the classroom to some of the broader social trends surrounding education in America today, about which you've written extensively. And I'm speaking of this idea of safe spaces, uh, Mm -hmm. the the topic of your most recent book, and also of another article you wrote, an opinion piece in the New York Times, also from this year in April, uh, titled, Don't Dismiss Safe Spaces. So I want to give you an opportunity to to walk us through your thinking on safe spaces, but uh, to begin by defining safe spaces as, as you define the term for the purposes of your argument, and then to walk us through your your uh, your proposal, as it were, for safe enough spaces. Yeah. So uh, basically, safe space is a space that uh, where you're protected from retaliation or harassment or retribution uh, for for who you are or what you said. And and the title of this book is Safe Enough Spaces. It's a it's a, a little bit of a joke, I guess, on the you know the idea of the good enough mother or the good enough parent from the 50s and 60s, that the, the mother who wouldn't make you psychotic, um, you don't have to be perfect, but, <laughs> uh, and, and the, the notion is that uh, we want, uh, and especially in increasingly diverse uh, campuses, we want people to feel included enough so that they feel safe to take risks, to accept um, uh, antagonistic ideas or offensive notions, um, and that they uh, are, can speak their minds because they won't be subject to harassment or retribution. And and so I trace this idea back to Kurt Levin, who's uh, at the end of the, just after the Second World War, was asked to um, go uh, to a factory, a manufacturing uh, a plant in the South that had moved from New England. And um, he was asked to go there as an industrial psychologist because uh, they were had trouble with productivity. They were not making as much 
uh, stuff as they had before. And so he was to interview the workers to find out what was going on. And the workers, of course, didn't really want to tell him because he was hired by the boss and they didn't want to get in trouble. And so he had this idea that he should, you know, create a, a safe space so that people could stop hiding their ideas for fear of retribution or uh, retaliation. And it, and, and it was in the service here of the, of the enterprise of the corporation. And I, I have to say this reconstruction of, I mean, I borrow from historians <laughs> who have done the work. I, you know, read them about Levin and then about feminist groups uh, in, uh, I cite in LA in the seventies, I had a student Moira Kenny uh, uh, in Claremont when I was out there and then she worked on my team at the Getty for a while. She, she traced it, ha traced how uh, feminist and, and lesbian groups um, try to create spaces where they could meet together and, of course, argue and talk things through, but not under the um, the threatening gaze of uh, a patriarchal society. And and uh, it was a place for building solidarity and and and, uh, but not a place of of groupthink or, or, or orthodoxy. And and I, I think you know you can look at uh, say gay bars uh, before the rise of social media. <laughs> gay bars as being places where you know uh, gay people could go to to meet other folks and not feel like might get beat up at the next any second now because they're in a um, uh, a space that's really threatening. So what I was trying to do is uh, destigmatize this notion of a safe space, which has become a fodder for pundits who think, you know, that uh, students need puppies and bean bags, and, and there are examples of that to be sure. But um, I, I, I think that uh, it's not that long ago that people from underrepresented groups were routinely harassed on college campuses. I got I got the trouble from one of my colleagues here, Wesley, wrote to me, routinely? Come on, Roth. You know, because I said that, I said routinely, professors want, you know, decided they would sleep with one of their students. And uh, I've gotten some flack from professors, but I, I, I say routinely because when I was a, a senior in college and I, some of my friends, <laughs> the girls I knew told me about sleeping with their professors, they made it sound like it's no big deal. I mean, what's the big deal? Um, and I know certainly in graduate school, many of the women who came to the programs at Princeton were very quickly um, <laughs> taken out by male professors who, um, as I say in that op-ed, found it easier to find sexual partners among students than among people their own age. And I think that the, the notion that these uh, groups, the women in that case, or uh, um, other underrepresented groups in the other instances, that they had equal access to the resources uh, of the school or of the city, and the, that, that, that be, I think that's just clearly false. That you don't have equal access to the resources of an environment if you have to take certain precautions to protect yourself against um, abasement or harassment. And so we, and I know that none of the critics of beanbags and puppies or coddling, none of them want to go back to those days. But I think we, we shouldn't forget that it's not that long ago, and in some places I'm sure it still goes on, that many students um, have those threats. And so I tried to describe um, uh, 
spaces on college campuses that are safe enough for speaking your mind and hearing other people speak their minds in ways that you would find surprising and sometimes offensive, um, but not so safe that you uh, have, have a, your mind closed to uh, uh, new ideas. Again, safe like a good enough parent, a uh, safe enough space is a space that you are protected enough so that you can be adventurous in your education. Um, um, and those people who tell me, well, you know, when I was at the University of Chicago in 1972, um, I didn't need any protection at all. I was a gladiator. And I think they too had a safe space. It was all men and it was all white or it was mostly men and it was all white. <laughs> And uh, and those were safe spaces. And today, I think making campuses more equitable by making them more inclusive is an important task. Uh, I do recognize that for, at some schools, especially fancy ones, that there is a consumer mentality and a a corporate mentality on campus where the students should get everything they want because they pay so much money and rich and the students, competition uh, among other colleges. Yeah. So that that's pernicious, but that is not because the students are spoiled or fragile. It's because the universities are fragile <laughs> and not competing for the dollars of students they want to please. That is a problem. Um, not a problem at Wesleyan so much, but, but, um, but it, it definitely is a problem when campuses compete with each other uh, by trying to give students more and more amenities. That's a problem. But that has very little to do with the critique of students today as being snowflakes or being fragile. So I'd, I'd like to inject another dimension to the conversation, which has to do with the notion of free speech and uh, yeah. to pick up on the idea of safe spaces, because the, the critique of safe spaces that you described, you know, uh, beanbag chairs and puppies, is part of it, this impatience with the perceived generational um, fragility, and which you've just addressed. But there's another component, which is the accusation of hypocrisy. And, and at the risk of oversimplification, I'm going to say left-right, that is to say liberal-conservative. Yeah. And the conservative critique of safe spaces is, in, in this line of thinking, is that safe spaces are safe for liberals, but not for conservatives. So they're, what they're really saying is safe for whom? Whom do you yeah. disinvite? Whom do you shout down? Uh, whom do you not allow? Or what, what have you? And in, in the cases that they offer, which may be uh, convenient cases, they may be unrepresentative, or they may be representative, but, but that's the argument. And yeah, when yeah. they make that argument, they often invoke... Uh, free speech. And so I want to inject a perspective on free speech and have you comment on it. Uh, Robert Post, a constitutional scholar and former dean of the Yale Law School, argues that campus speech, even at public universities, is not really an exercise of free speech in the constitutionally protected sense. To him, university or educational speech is actually intended to be curbed by selection and curation on the basis of expertise and educational value judgments. And so it's really a different take on this critique uh, against safe spaces from the point of view of free speech. He gets to the root of questioning the idea of free speech in this context in the first place. So I wanted, yeah. I wanted to hear your take on this. Well, th th thank you. And Bob Post, he's a 
and he's a very thoughtful uh, person about these issues and 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 I I I, I think he's in this case I, he, he of course he knows so much more about the the legal dimensions of this than than I, I ever will but I I, I I do agree and make this point in in the safe enough spaces that that uh, we're constantly curating expression on college and university campuses and 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 a good thing too because we we our job is is um, not to be an aggregator of everything that's said, but it actually uh, find ways of educating students through discourse and images and, and music and so on. Uh, Stanley Fish has made a similar point for, for years that, that speech in universities always um, curated or, or, or filtered uh, for educative purposes. That, that said, you have to be very careful to um, ensure, and, and we do this on the faculty, that we are making uh, legitimate voices heard. Uh, and, and when people say, how, who makes the decision and what's legitimate, it usually turns out to be the faculty, sometimes with student input, depending on the institution. Um, and one has to be very careful to think, am I, am I limiting this speech because um, I happen not to like it and I'm just, ex I'm just exercising bias or am I exercising my professional judgment? I mean, I think that's a, that's a question we ask ourselves, we should ask ourselves all the time. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that the, the marketplace of ideas notion that everything uh, can be said on a university campus and the best ideas rise to the top, I think it's, it's just not a... Um, an accurate picture of how universities and colleges work. Um, and it's also an idea, this notion of the marketplace of ideas, uh, it, one that students today and some faculty greet with great suspicion because we have seen the appropriation of free speech talk by right-wing ideologues to advance their own particular policies. And when you can amplify some speech through uh, power and money, so it drowns out all other speech, um, then calling just for unregulated speech is like just calling for people who can amplify the most to dominate all discourse. And it's like to say, I want an unregulated economy so there are no rules against pollution. I mean, uh, free enterprise is very important in my view, but some regulations are also very important. And I think the same is true on a campus. Many regulations are really important. And we have to understand, are those regulations self-serving, that they're only to protect the orthodoxy of the moment? Or are the regulations actually in the uh, service of a process of education? And I tell the often tell the story that when I was a young professor in Claremont, I heard a story of the, about the president of Pomona College at the time, which I've always assumed this is true, although I've never verified it. David Alexander was his name. Um, that uh, he found out that this group of uh, Nazis, neo-Nazis from Orange County, who had an innocuous title to their organization, uh, you know, revisionist history of some kind, um, that they had rented space on the Pomona College campus to have a little conference on, um, on why the Holocaust was a hoax per perpetuated by Jews, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he got up from his street, walked over and said, you, guys, you are to leave this campus immediately. And, you know, the lawyers are upset. Oh, they have a contract. And, and they said, we'll sue you. And he said, yes, you'll sue me, but you will not use my campus, you Nazis. <laughs> Um, you will not. We have to make judgments. We do it all the time. And somebody draws the line. And, and, and I think as a university president, my job is 
uh, is to help faculty and students, but mostly faculty, um, uh, draw the line with education in mind. And, uh, and, and that often means uh, making sure people aren't the target of, uh, of intimidation uh, and harassment. At the same time, I think it's been my job to promote um, the active uh, encouragement of conservative and religious ideas on campus. Since I don't think the free market approach is, is good enough for uh, uh, thinking about speech on campus, I, I've called for an affirmative action program for conservative thinking. Um, I did that at first in the Wall Street Journal, and now I extend the argument a bit in Safe Enough Spaces. If we recognize we, ha we at colleges and universities have a left lefty bias, which I think we do, um, then we have to work harder to bring serious ideas about the study of conservative thinking and religious thinking, libertarian thinking to campus. Um, and uh, that means um, being very proactive about it and not just saying we're open to it. Because sometimes if you do that, you have prejudice, 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 and then you'll have a Milo or some, some other uh, provocateur come to campus under the guise of bringing conservative ideas, but they're really just there to provoke either a free speech crisis or uh, uh, some other kind of incident. And I, I just think that's a terrible cycle to be in, that in, encouraging the study of uh, this, these various traditions seems to be quite important. Uh, and, and it's hard to, some of my colleagues uh, at Wesleyan certainly don't agree with me here. And, you know, they've some of said to me, well, you know, the, the right wing controls everything else in the country. We control the campus. I just think that's politically, uh, I'm trying to think of a word other than dumb, but I can't. I think it's dumb politically. <laughs> and I think it's, it's anti-intellectual in the extreme that we control the campus. We should actually be opening our students and ourselves up to ideas that we, at first glance, don't find congenial, but are worth studying. That's not to say we should study, you know, Trump's theory of tariffs. He doesn't have a theory of tariffs. Uh, but if we want to look at different views of mercantilism or whatever, I mean, that's a that, that that's a subject of historical and uh, thought and historical you're thought. Effectively, you're asking the faculty to do what they ask of the students. Yes. And it doesn't, I should be clear, it doesn't mean you have to hire a conservative. I mean, I teach Aquinas. I'm not in danger of converting to Catholicism. Um, but but I, I really need to work at teaching it from a, the sympathetic perspective. I teach everything else. Um, and so that you don't have to hire someone who wears the colors of the of the team. Uh, but you do need to hire thoughtful people about such things. And I, you know, I haven't convinced everybody, but I, the fact that we're having these conversations on campus, that people are debating it, that people are asking, uh, what is it, intellectual diversity anyway? And, you know, and, you know, as a president, I, some people just are going to uh, reject my idea because it comes from with authority. And, and, and that's fine. That's another kind of intellectual diversity. But I'm very pleased that people are talking about it. I, I think the Heterodox Academy is doing good work in this regard too, trying to get people to not just think otherwise in the Foucauldian sense, that's become a cliche. My, um, I was a student of Foucault's in France um, and it pains me to see the Foucauldian uh, uh, energetic irreverent paradigm become a new kind of dogma. And some of my colleagues just repeat these Foucauldian phrases 
um, as a catechism, but don't actually bring into the mix surprising ideas and and notions that that really go against the grain of the campus today. And I think we need to do that. And and I, I I'm in a position where I can help make that happen. Well, President Michael Roth, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Josh, it's been a pleasure for me, and uh, thank you for your good questions and and, uh, for all the work you're doing. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts, or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes. 